Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we are looking at H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Outsider. Yes, I understand you you gentlemen had a fun and interesting weekend. Hey, hey. Yes, indeed. We went to Dragon Me in London, uh, the one-day games convention, which is held every year in December and is largely given over to a trade hall with uh, a new venue this year, which I kind of like, Matt. What did you think? Yeah, it, had, it had its ups and downs. The first and hardest thing was, could you pass your spot hidden roll to find where the bloody entrance was? Uh, yeah, that it, was kind of <laughs> awkward because I ended up in a, a lobby da- in, in a downstairs area and the only access was a lift that would take four people at a time. <laughs> And I was a bit late getting there, so I was like, surely like uh, over a thousand people can't have entered the venue through this one <laughs> lift. <laughs> but later on, we did find another entrance. But yeah, I mean, the, the venue was more kind of spacious and felt more relaxed and, and inviting this year, I felt. And for the maps I saw, it looked like there were more traders there than ever this year. Yeah, I would say it was bigger and better this year. Yeah, definitely. Cool. With the trade design, did you notice anything particularly new and interesting on the stores or any product announcements that you came across that you thought people might be interested in? I grabbed a whole load of stuff off the Lamentations of the Flame Princess stand. Or what, what <laughs> new stuff did James have there? Uh, we had Broodmother Sky Fortress, Blood in the Chocolate, and then some of the leftover print runs of some of his crowdfunded stuff, such as um, The Old Man, The Squid, and something else. That and I the can't Bottles. Remember. The Bottles, something. that was it. Yeah. And his promo this year was a leaflet which featured a another version of Marillion's album Fugazi. Oh, cool. Um, which, yeah, I've got kicking around somewhere. I'll show you later. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really want to see that. I mean, yeah. Fugazi was one of my favourite albums when I was young. Yeah, definitely. But, of course, the other big reason why people go down to Dragmate is the seminars. I mean, they, they, they tend to have a fairly full uh, seminar programme with, with lots of industry talks going on. And uh, you two were on the Chaosium panel, weren't you? Yes, yeah, we were. Um, that's that's actually probably one of the other things that I probably think would be a slight downfall in their organisation for this year. Seminar rooms were far too small. So how did the seminar actually go? It went pretty well. Mob, Michael O'Brien from Chaosium, had kind of come up with a, a script entitled The Cool of Cthulhu. There was myself and Matt and Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy and Jeff Richards on the panel uh, with Mob as, as chairman. We kind of went through a background of Cthulhu and Lovecraft and, and through the ages and then up to modern day and then talking about what Chaosium was kind of bringing out and what was in the works. And myself and Matt talked a bit about Two-Headed Serpent and, and so on. Yeah, yeah, they mentioned a, couple, mentioned a couple of projects. I think um, Children of Fear was mentioned, uh, the project Lynn's working on. Yeah, the campaign. Yeah, uh, the Grand Grimoire of the Mythos, the Spell Compendium. Uh, Two-Headed Serpent, and I think that was pretty much all that they oh, they mentioned by name, but apart from hinting, there were a few other projects in the pipeline. Oh, one or two, yeah. yeah just, just a few, <laughs> yeah. And of course, yeah, one of the great joys in Dragon Meat is going around and just catching up with people. So who did you actually end up meeting there? Oh, a lot of people. <laughs> it was pretty packed. I think pretty much most of the, the big names in the industry certainly turn out for this one. I bumped into Chris Lackey from the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And, uh, yeah, it was great to see him. Uh, he was there with Steve Dempsey and a few other people. 
and, and ask Chris about the videos that he's been doing that oh, we've, God, we've yes. mentioned. Yeah, and I think yeah. we should mention again because he was like, well, I'm not sure I'm going to do any more. Yes, oh, please yeah, do. Chris, Chris, do them. Do them, I know. please. I said to him, you know, they're great and they, we want to see more. But if yeah. it's not getting enough shares, they're not getting enough love. So he's like, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. And that, that to me is apparent mm. that there are a lot of work to do. You know, for the returns they're getting, you know, for the number of hits they're getting, you know, we're getting as many hits there's that on on the ones i've done on like the cthulhu rules don't get me wrong paul i mean those are good videos you're doing but in terms but they're of they're not as good as what <laughs> no, chris is doing no, they're they're, no nowhere yeah. near so um, for, for those of you who haven't seen these already these are uh, he's done three of these lovecrafting comedy videos with uh is it greg johnson They've done one that has been inspired by the statement of Randolph Carter, one uh, inspired by From Beyond, and one based on Pickman's model. And they are just lovely. <laughs> I mean, if you're a Lovecraft fan, you will enjoy the references. Uh, even if you're not, you'll still appreciate the comedy. And the production values, for the, considering they are these, these short little things that are put on YouTube, the production values are absolutely amazing. Mm. These things are more professional-looking than most of the Lovecraftian shorts I've seen. And think of the horrifying things you can do if you turn a painting 90 degrees. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll put another link to these in the show notes. I, I've linked to it in the past, or linked to some of their videos in the past. But, yeah, it, it really, really, take the time and go and see them. You will not be disappointed. And share them with your friends as well. Mm. So who else did you see? Yeah, the first guy that I met, I think, because I was waiting for the uh, infamous lift was a chap started talking to me and I was like, oh, have I met you before? And he's like, I'm Drew Scar, whose name you'll recognise from our singing uh, his praises in the previous episode for being one of our backers. I still keep hearing your voice as Davros in my ear. When <laughs> <laughs> and we met a whole bunch of other um, backers of the show. I've a quick list off. There was Alina, Ollie, Pender, Tor... Anthony Lee Dudley, Jonathan Powell, and Jörg Steiner had come all the way from Austria. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, over a week has passed now and I've forgotten some names. So if I've, if I've bumped into you and I've forgotten to mention you, my apologies. Yes, it is once again time for the Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is gothic. It's an adjective. One, A, of or pertaining to a style of architecture prevalent in Western Europe from the mid-twelfth to the sixteenth century, characterised by pointed arches, ribbed vaulting, flying buttresses, rich ornamentation and a progressive lightening of structure. Or B, of or pertaining to a style of architecture imitating Gothic forms and motifs. 2. Of or pertaining to the Goths or their language. 3. Of or pertaining to the Middle Ages, medieval. 4. Barbarous or crude. 5. Of or pertaining to a style of literature characterised by gloomy setting, mysterious, sinister or violent events. And in contemporary fiction an imperiled heroine. 
We've made a lot of references in the past to the early, more gothic works of H.P. Lovecraft. And The Outsider, which we're going to talk about in this episode, is definitely one of those. Oh, yes. You started out very influenced by Poe, and Poe was sort of the, in a lot of ways, the archetypal gothic horror writer. That said, Lovecraft himself very rarely used the word in that connotation. He tended to refer to the style of architecture. He was pretty big on architecture, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He never never passed up an opportunity to make reference to a style of architecture in one of his stories. And, yeah, he used the word gothic, uh, oh, gosh, some 18 times in his fiction. And of those, I think 15 or 16 refer to the style of architecture. Let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself actually used the word gothic. From the dreams in the witch house. Non-Euclidean calculus and quantum physics are enough to stretch any brain. And when one mixes them with folklore and tries to trace a strange background of multidimensional reality behind the ghoulish hints of the gothic tales and wild whispers of the chimney corner, one can hardly expect to be wholly free from mental tension. And from the rats in the walls... Not Hoffman or Huysmans could conceive a scene more wildly incredible, more frenetically repellent or more gothically grotesque than the twilight grotto through which we seven staggered. Each stumbling on revelation after revelation and trying to keep for the nonce from thinking of the events which must have taken place there 300 years or a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand years ago. And finally, from the haunter of the dark. Around the pillar, in a rough circle, were seven high-backed gothic chairs, still largely intact, while behind them... Ranging along the dark panelled walls were seven colossal images of crumbling black painted plaster, resembling more than anything else the cryptic carven megaliths of mysterious Easter Island. And now on to our main topic The Outsider. This is one of the earlier Lovecraft stories we've discussed. It was written in 1921, apparently between March and August. Though it wasn't published for some years later, it was eventually published in Weird Tales in the April 1926 issue. That's quite a long period between the two. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not really sure of the history of why it took that long. But I know when it it was published, it was one of uh, the more popular uh, tales in Weird Tales at the time. The story gave its title to the first collection from Arkham House of Lovecraft stories, The Outsider and Others. And apparently August Ehrlich was inspired to do this because he had heard uh, Lovecraft refer to himself as an outsider and just thought it particularly fitting. And it was also an influence on Colin Wilson, right? Who... Yeah, sort of. Maybe in retrospect, who wrote a book of the same title. I mean, the the title's been used a few times by different authors, but Mm. Colin Wilson wrote a book... Was that in the 60s, The Outsider? Um, About his life in uh, kind of North London and Hampstead, wasn't it? No. um, Am I thinking of... He he wrote a number of books about that, but The Outsider was actually uh, a look at various sort of classic outsider characters, outsider people uh, in Western culture. So I I think, for example, uh, I'm trying to remember, Nijinsky uh, was one of them. But, yeah, they they were basically these biographical sketches of people who never quite fitted into the mainstream but ended up having a profound influence and effect upon it. Hmm. So how did he link that to Lovecraft's Outsider? 
Well, the story is that um, people asked Colin Wilson whether he was inspired for the title of his book by Lovecraft's story, and he'd never actually heard of uh, the story, or, or I think even Lovecraft at the time. It led him to go off and read some of Lovecraft's work and learn something of the, um, of the Cthulhu mythos, and as a result, he wrote a story that ended up going into Tales of the Cthulhu mythos uh, called Return of the Loigor. A few other sort of Lovecraftian pieces, including the novel uh, The Mind Parasites. I've been wondering, is this the same Colin Wilson who also wrote a lot of collections on uh, weird phenomena and the paranormal and so on? Ah, Yeah, Yeah. he was a phenomenally uh, prolific writer. He published, oh gosh, well over 100 books in his lifetime. Because I've used a couple of them for uh, research on 14 events for some of the stuff we've done recently. Mm. Oh, just, I thought it was a fairly common name. I wasn't sure if it was the same Colin Wilson oh, or not. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw him give a talk in Plymouth when I was there in the 80s at Plymouth University. Oh, wow. Yeah. The only bit I can remember was he talked about peak experience, which was kind of a, a sense of overwhelming joy at kind of everyday events like the sunshine being reflected through trees off a floor or something like that and just hmm. sort of instilling one with a sort of sense of peace and oneness and sort of happiness. I actually saw a talk about Colin Wilson fairly recently uh, when I went down to this folk horror event at the British Museum. One of the talks there was his official biographer uh, giving a talk about his work and his life. And his official biographer, I'm struggling to remember his name, but is is actually also the bassist from Blondie. Hmm. So... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, it just struck me as weird, but apparently mm-hmm. he's, he's developed this second career as a writer in recent years and, and has written a number of fairly interesting books, including this, this fairly comprehensive biography of Wilson. And now our synopsis of The Outsider. Well, the story opens with a quotation from John Keats from his poem The Eve of St Agnes. The, I mean, the quotation itself uh, sets the mood a bit. Um, I, there are some similarities between the poem and The Outsider in terms of the fact they're both set in castles, but that's about it. Nice thematic link there. <laughs> but then we move into what I think is really you know, a very, very striking opening. Perhaps a little overwrought, but I mean, quite a powerful one. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness... Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me. To me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. So as that sets up, our protagonist is living this lonely, isolated existence in this dark, dismal castle full of uh, echoing corridors and brown hangings and strange books. And giant trees that seem to blot out the sun. Yes. And he can't remember ever hearing or seeing another person, or really anything living apart from the, the spiders and rats and, and mice and so on that live around there. Plus the occasional oh, bat. And the bats, yes, of mm-hmm. course. How can I forget the bats? <laughs> 
But what makes these things all the more eerie is that they're silent. And not only that, but he sees no other people. Yeah, he, he just makes the assumption that, oh, I'm here, so people, or I think his, his term was creatures or things or minions must have dealt with, um, tended to me. The actual quotation is, I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled and decaying like the castle. He doesn't even get to see his own reflection in mirrors. There are none, that's why. And even if he did, he has, he has only candles for light. Yes, and he stares into the candles sometimes, just for the sensation of it. Maybe he's a closet pyromaniac. Well, I used <laughs> to do that, looking at candles longingly. We get the impression that this place, he's been left in this weird place. There are skeletons, there are... It just seems very depressing and dismal... But we get also the impression that he's in the middle of a dark forest and the, the, the trees are growing up so thick and high that the buildings that he's in do not protrude above the tree line. Yeah, that he can't see the sky, he's, he's never seen the sun or the moon, that these trees block everything. And also that he, is, he considers himself to be a prisoner in this castle, or at least trapped there, and has thought about escaping, has actually tried to on occasions, but has never actually managed to venture very far beyond the putrid moat that surrounds the castle, for fear of getting lost in these woods. But there is one black tower that seems to extend above the tree line, to which he sets himself to try and climb to see, I guess, to see the sky, to see what lies beyond the forest. And so, yes, he starts to climb up the stairs of the tower and makes it some way up before the, the stairs actually give way, before they crumble, at which stage he resorts to clambering up the stonework of the tower itself, all the way up to the very top, something that he describes as taking an eternity. And eventually he comes to something above his head, doesn't he? And he, he can feel it above his head. And, and he's able to push this, like a, a, maybe a, a trapdoor open above himself and, and, and pull himself up to this room above himself. He assumes that the room he's clambered into is some kind of observation room atop the tower. But he finds that it's something else. Yes, it's a curious room. Wider than the tower as well. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. a large room with marble shelves and disturbing oblong boxes. And he shuts the trapdoor behind him and it slams shut. And almost immediately, he's worried that he may not be able to open it again. Well, we but, call it a trapdoor, Scott. It's, it's, a, it's a stone trapdoor, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like a stone slab. Or, But then he manages to open the one door that's in the room and clambers up some stairs and sees through a grating that instead of the, the great precipice that he's expecting down to, uh, to the forest and to the castle below, that instead it's opening up onto ground, in fact onto this park-like place or this, this overgrown place that, that he describes as having you know, say, strange slabs uh, in it, and then he quickly realises is a churchyard. There came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. And that is his reaction to seeing the moon for the first time overhead. And yes, he cautiously opens the gate and, and heads out. And he finds himself travelling for miles through countryside, which is all at once unfamiliar, but, but it 
brings back images to his mind that are, he describes, maddeningly familiar, as if perhaps this he's dreamed of this place or he's been here before, we don't know. But it's not quite the same anymore. Some places he expects to exist are just ruins. Some of the roads that he travels down aren't really there anymore or have fallen into disuse. But he still seems to know that he's going somewhere. And after walking for so long, he eventually comes to another castle. Again, it features in his mind very differently. He's expecting, well, there should be a tower over there, there should be a bit there, what's this yeah. extra wing doing over here, and, and yeah. so forth. and some parts of it are crumbling, and the moat's been filled in as well. Mm. Yeah, he's expecting this moat to be around it, but, yeah, it's not there anymore. He does enter into the castle, almost like, quote, a thief in the night, climbing in through a window. Yeah, because he can see like lights and hear voices, and there's uh, there's a like a ball going on. So we imagine this is a a large, um, well lit room that he's climbing into with but lots of people dancing. Perhaps he's only guessing at what's going on. Some of it looks familiar. The expressions on some faces look familiar, but as he says. I had never seemingly heard human speech before and could only guess vaguely at what was said. But then the revellers see our narrator. They see him and they turn and flee and scream as he enters through the window. And he assumes that something horrible must have followed him in, something lurking in the shadows behind him that is inspiring this panic. And he himself runs to a passageway and he sees a golden arched doorway and and he can see something there in the shadows beyond the doorway i cannot even hint what it was like for it was a compound of all that is unclean uncanny unwelcome abnormal and detestable it was the ghoulish shade of decay antiquity and dissolution the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet, to my horror, I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty of the human shape, and, in its mouldy, disintegrating apparel, an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. And in his shock and surprise, he, he stumbles and falls forward towards the thing and he, he reaches out with his hand and he touches the, the horrid hand of, of the thing under the golden arch. Well, like any sane investigator at this point, he turns and runs in, he runs in terror. He evidently failed his sand check. And he runs across the countryside, going back to his own castle, only to find that, as we said, that trapdoor is very much like a slab of stone. He can't get it open. But he decides that this is probably a good thing, that he doesn't want to return to that old life. And so he heads off and creates a new existence for himself. He now sports with uh, the ghouls upon the night wind and explores Egyptian catacombs. And we get quite a description of this new life that he has forged for himself. And then he tells us the revelation that he experienced at that ball, in that castle, when he fell and touched the hand. Because he touched not rotting flesh, but the cold, unyielding surface of polished glass. Well, let's dig into the outsider a bit and see exactly what we make of what's going on here. 
whenever I read the start of this story and he's describing that mouldering old castle, it always makes me think of Gormenghast. <laughs> oh, you know, that really... Yeah. I mean, there are some other characters in Gormenghast by Mervyn Peake, but they're very sparse and they're very odd. And there are all these kind of wings of the castle which are forgotten and uh, uninhabited and they're curious characters. And I kind of get the feeling that this place he's in is, yeah, similar. Yeah, Yes, just even less populated. Apparently. Personally, I, it evoked more of a sense of the Casco Amontillado, the sense that there are corpses in the catacombs just piled up against the wall or in alcoves and so on. This is Poe, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but also, John Carpenter lifted a bit of the, di- um, a bit of the dialogue here for his description in, uh, um, in The Mouth of Madness. Um, as the editor is reading, the, um, reading a passage from the book that the author in the film had supposedly created. Suttercane. Suttercane, that's it. Um, as Trent's looking into the void, she's providing this kind of dialogue over the back. And the phrase, piled up corpses of dead generations, is very similar to one of the lines that's in that description. But you mentioned Poe, and I think you know, this is possibly the most Poe-influenced story that Lovecraft wrote. Mm-hmm. A lot of his early stuff is in the Gothic mould, and in his letters and conversations with friends, you know, he freely admitted that Poe was a huge influence on his early work. I mean, it's perhaps a bit more adjectival in the prose, but at times, in places, this feels like it could almost be a Poe story. Hmm. Especially down to look mention about the Mask of the Red Death, how that it entered like a thief in the night and that then all the revellers start scattering, screaming, etc. It's a ball, it's a castle. There's lots of images, but say put together in a different way. Yeah, and the opening, a number of critics have compared it to the opening of Poe's Berenice. Having reread the opening recently, I mean, I can see there are similarities, but... I wouldn't exactly accuse Lovecraft of having cribbed the opening. There are just tonal similarities. The one story that it did remind me more of, which uh, is something I I went out and read because I'd seen other people make the comparison, was a story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Fragments from the Journal of a Solitary Man. And the majority of the story is about uh, someone putting together um, or reading through the journals of a recently deceased friend uh, and sort of piecing together bits about his life. But there's just a couple of passages in there where the deceased um, journalist refers to this weird dream he had in which he was walking down Broadway in a scene of gaiety with people all around. It was daylight. Yet everyone who passed him seemed to be absolutely shocked and appalled and was shunning him. He was trying to work out what was going on and at some point he comes across a shop window and looks inside and there's a mirror in there and he sees himself there dressed in his funeral shroud and you know just makes a vague uh hint at being badly decayed and that's that's the point at which he wakes up hmm i'm interested to note that rh barlow one of lovecraft's uh, young collaborators recounted a conversation with lovecraft regarding this story in which Barlow recounts, The Outsider is a series of climaxes originally intended to cease with the graveyard episode. Then he wondered what would happen if people were to see the ghoul, and so he included the second climax, and finally he decided to have the thing see itself. So it's like he kind of started off with one idea, and then he kind of built on it, and then he added on to it. Still not very long. Still, We haven't really said that this story is only about 
half a dozen pages long. Yeah, seven about, pages maybe. Yeah, about two thousand, two and a half thousand words. Yeah, yeah, by far the shortest that we've covered. And I got through it in one sitting. No sleep count. No sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, but that that was because it chilled you to the very core, and and you will never sleep uh, a good night's sleep again. I, I think I fell asleep immediately after finishing it. I put the book down and then went. <laughs> that's bedtime story yeah <laughs> it was in fact the last thing i did before going to bed one night last week but oh, no, i thoroughly enjoyed it I, i'd say this is actually one of lovecraft's more nightmarish stories i think when we were talking about uh, pickman's model we touched upon the fact that particularly in his later work he expands the scope and he makes them much more exploratory and weird and brings in science fictional elements and so on but this is a pure gothic horror story and it's like you say nightmarish we can almost imagine having this this vision and it's we're very much seeing it through the protagonist's eyes there's no kind of interaction with other people aside from them kind of fleeing they don't really feature in the story so it's all about us and, you know, I've read it a number of times and every time I'm kind of at a loss for quite what is going on when he's in this apparently underground place. I mean, he's in, in an underground place. Well, he's not, apparently. He's in a castle and the trees are above the castle. It's dark all the time. I, for me, it seems fairly straightforward. You've got the similarities between the castle that he wakes up in at the beginning, or sorry, the, the castle that he starts off from. And the castle that he travels to after going across the countryside for miles. Yes, you've got the woods, which don't actually make any sense in this context, these underground woods. You've got, I mean, the, the whole setup with no people, this dream of this person he assumes is a nurse, but probably wasn't. And for me, what makes the most sense is if none of the stuff that happens until he lifts the uh, the supposed trapdoor at the end happens anywhere other than in his own mind, that he is dead, that you know he's been lying there mouldering in his tomb in this this mausoleum in this churchyard for a long time, and that at some point he stirs from the dead, you know, has these dreams, these echoes of the life that he knew, but all seen through this, this filter of darkness and decay, this amnesia that comes with death, just these vague hints of who he used to be, and then goes out to explore and, and reconnect with it. I think I'd be more given to accepting that explanation that he was just in the tomb and he awoke and came out. Were it not for a later story the rats in the walls where we kind of almost get a glimpse of this same realm mm. but in that it's not a dream vision when the group go under x and priory they do find this this weird world under there and we also sort of hear well perhaps reference to it in the statement of randolph carter we see that the ghouls again in dream quest and Pickman's model and hints of it even in the picture of the house so it seems like a, a kind of a running thread with lovecraft Perhaps a kind of a, a ghoul collection of, of stories. Yeah, I must admit, I'm, I fall into the latter camp there, where I like the idea of it being this sub vast subterranean, wonderful but yet still dark and terrifying world that's just beneath our own. It might be that, you know, when he goes back to the, the graveyard and the, and the crypt that he emerged out of, you know, he is no longer able to lift that, that stone slab. Maybe he's kind of come out of we could almost sort of say another dimension that, you know, if we went into that crypt, we wouldn't, be, if we just lifted that stone, there wouldn't be a tower, it'd just be some earth. 
it's almost as if this thing was in another dimension that we can't really reach. This wouldn't be the first one of Lovecraft's stories to blur that line because, you know, obviously your know, dreams and the dreamlands were a big part of his work. And the fact that the protagonist, the narrator, is having these dead dreams uh, has created this world for himself down below doesn't mean that it doesn't in some sense exist. It just may exist in dream. Mm, I kind of like the idea that this could be a dreamland's realm that he was uh, stuck in. That would totally fit. Especially as there is, at least in the... um in the fiction, there is the link between the ghouls being able to burrow their way into the dreamlands. Maybe this is the, it's one burrowing out of the dreamlands. But we do see that stone trapdoor again in Dream Quest for the Un- Unknown Kadath. And I believe Randolph Carter is helped in that story, perhaps by ghouls or some such. Yes, they help definitely. him lift the, the big stone disc. One thing that both of you have touched upon here is that you've both referred to the protagonist as a ghoul. You're not the first people to do this, and I've, I've seen other critical analyses of, of The Outsider that does this. Would you think of this in terms of the kinds of ghouls that we see in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and Pikmin's model, or is this something else? Because the description doesn't seem to quite match. No, I was thinking about that, because there are a couple of moments where it does not contradict, but definitely questions whether it is or not. Um, I think the most telling is where he's refer- obviously referring to coffins as being these un- ugly oblong boxes. And I think there's a reference earlier than that where he's talking about that he hasn't ate or had sustenance for some time. Maybe if the ghoul hasn't eaten any dead flesh or any corpse flesh for such a long time that it started to play with his memories. And that's mm. why he started to come become the way he is. And that maybe he's even forgotten completely about such urges, why he doesn't go, oh, lunch, whenever he sees the coffin. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an interesting interpretation. I mean, this is, this is all interpretation, isn't it? Because mm. we're extrapolating from half a dozen pages. I mean, I would figure if, if we were to go down the ghoul route, then perhaps this being that was buried has somehow been created into a ghoul. And this is perhaps its first time, you know, above ground, so it doesn't even know how to satiate its hungers yet. Maybe when it goes back to Egypt, it does feast upon graves or whatever. I don't know. But to me, the answer would be, I don't know. It's some kind of ghoulish thing, whether it's the same as Pikmin and and the, the later ghouls that Lovecraft writes about. I don't know. There's also no mention of any canine features, hooves, yeah. etc. It mm-hmm. is very much it's just a rotten corpse. It's very much is very much the motif that comes across. But of course, I, Lovecraft wrote this before he wrote Pigman's model or Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So this could be his first attempt at, at describing or imagining what would later become the ghouls. As anyone who's written anything knows, if you return back to the same ideas, they change you know, and, and you reform them, reuse them, and they quite often become something quite different. So it could be that this was his first attempt at writing a ghoul story, but he just compl- changed his mind later about what a ghoul actually was. Or it could be some kind of much more traditional gothic revenant. I guess, you know, there's a tendency for us as gamers and readers to, to try and make links between the stories and thinking of the protagonist of this as a ghoul is, is is an obvious link and an easy one to make although there are some more blatant links right at the very end ah go on yes. matt yes yeah. while this takes place within the wider setting of the mythos i don't think it's necessarily right to call it a mythos story in itself but where he describes going off to the egyptian catacombs and then 
kind of the connection with Nicotrice, uh, Nefren Carr, they're names which appear in other stories. And also, if you've uh, played one of the um, big Chaosium Call of Cthulhu campaigns as well, which is actually the first thing that leapt to mind with me. Yeah. I mean, Tokris certainly turns up in uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. Uh, I think this is the first appearance of the fictitious pharaoh Nefren Carr, mm-hmm. who then becomes associated with the Black Pharaoh, uh, turns up in the, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, plays a big role in the backstory of The Haunter of the Dark, uh, which really sort of connects him with Nialathotep in the way that, you know, then in the gaming uh, world, you, you see as, as his, his incarnation as the Black Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to see that stuff there when I read this story again. I mean, it's only a couple of sentences just before the final revelation of the story when he talks about flying on the ghoul winds to Egypt and, and joining these, these other characters. And I think if, you don't, if those names don't resonate with you, Nitocris and Nefrenkar, then you just kind of maybe just gloss over them. But once we know the other things we know, then it's like, ah, that's, uh, that all links in. But again, I mean, this is a first appearance of them in his stories. I mean, he may have borrowed Nitocris actually from one of Dunsany's stories. Well, Nitocris mm-hmm. is a, uh, yeah. a factual oh, character, no, right? No, oh, yeah, but, but the, you know, the fact that he's using her in this way, I think, was possibly inspired by, mm. uh, by her, her appearance in, in Dunsany's... Um, which one was it? Uh, Queen's Enemies? That's the one. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about this in, uh, in our previous episodes about beginnings middles and ends of games one of the things we talked about was reincorporation of npcs mm-hmm. yeah and lovecraft is bang on there with uh, reincorporating nefer and car later on it's, it's not the first time that he's stolen direct wholesale names from dunsany as well i mean he lifted at the mountains of madness completely from the hashish man huh okay i never realized that yeah it's um the uh the emperor Thublamine has his dream self casted across the lands of dream to the very um, to the very south, where he um, where he sees the mountains of madness. Ha! Huh. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Of course, Lovecraft at this stage wasn't necessarily fleshing this out as part of the mythos because I, at this stage the mythos didn't really exist. It's more, you know, the thing that he did over and over again of, like you said, Paul, reincorporation, uh, the fact that he, he came up with these names and then just used them, sometimes in very different ways, which created this sense of cohesion, this sense of mythology, which then became the mythos and is what spread out to everyone else. But, you know, it's perhaps stretching it a bit sometimes for us to go back and find these early references and sort of say, yes, of course, this means X or this ties in with such and such, particularly in gaming. Because, you know, this is all stuff that people have retrofitted afterwards. One aspect of this story that really stands out to me is it feels much more emotional than a lot of Lovecraft's other work. I I find quite often his prose to be very dry and clinical. No, sorry, that may be unfair. But I find his approach to dealing with the emotional content in his stories to be very clinical and detached. But with this, there seems to be a real emotional core that you don't find in a lot of Lovecraft stories. Well, it's about a personal revelation, isn't it? And it it is about one person and their experience. Often his stories are about somebody experiencing events which are external to them. This is very kind of internal. And the final revelation is you know, is wholly about that person. And we see similar things in some of his other stories where, you know, the bloodline manifests some aspect of the, that is a revelation at the end of uh, a few stories. 
And certainly a lot of critics have suggested that some of this emotional resonance comes from Lovecraft perhaps drawing upon his own childhood, the isolation there. The fact that he was a very isolated child living in a house full of books, that his mother had on occasions described him as having a particularly ugly face, which he felt very self-conscious about. Well, there is the very first line of it, him talking about how recollection of a sad childhood makes you lonely, unhappy, and so on. So, yeah, yeah there's a definite connection there. Yeah, except, I mean, the counter-argument to all of that, of course, is the fact that Lovecraft always described his childhood as being happy, that he liked that isolation and liked the books. But at the same time, I can't help but think he would have experienced great sadness as a child. His father died when he was quite young. Mm. And, you know, there was a lot of family difficulties, so he might have felt it was an overall happy experience, but I'm sure there was plenty of um, sad, lonely times to draw upon for inspiration for this. And what you were talking about there before, Paul, with it building up to a revelation, I and mean, this is almost like Pickman's model in this respect, that we can see the end coming, that Lovecraft has dropped enough hints from uh, you know, the scene of the party that you know, for the page that follows after that, we know what it's building up to. You know, we can see it coming. But that again, like in Pickman's model, actually is a strength, not a weakness, because it actually, I think, for me, enhances that feeling of dread. We're going to be told something blatantly that we've inferred, something unpleasant. By the end of it, there will be no escaping what that actually is. It may be some, for some people, they read it, and that is a twist at the end. But I think I would agree, for most readers, it's not really a, you know, a, a surprise. Yeah. And now we take a look at works inspired by The Outsider. So I understand you found some works by Thomas Ligotti, Scott. Yeah, well, one particular story, uh, there was a weird little bit that he wrote at the end of um, a very limited collection that he did. Uh, it hasn't appeared in any of his big collections. But in this book called The Agonising Resurrection of Victor Frankenstein and Other Gothic Tales, which contains this weird little story at the back of it called The Works and Death of H.P. Lovecraft. And it's a little triptych of stories. The first one is called The Fabulous Alienation of the Outsider, Being of No Fixed Abode. And then there's a second one which uh, draws upon elements from uh, The Call of Cthulhu. And then this final kind of weird, bittersweet vignette about Lovecraft's death. They all sort of draw out elements of, of Lovecraft's life, his beliefs, uh, his um, sort of sense of nihilism and alienation, but then provide this you know, very Ligotti-ish twist on them. I mean, if you can track this down, uh, yeah, I really do recommend reading it. I mean, it's it's even. I mean, the three stories together are even shorter than the outside. Oh, really? So they're yeah. just. <laughs> kind of articles really they're yeah, just they're, quite they're short little vignettes there, but yeah oh no i'm really intrigued to um to see those somebody else who's done a few takes on lovecraft however this one i did start watching a few years back and have never returned to would be Stuart gordon's castle freak <laughs> <laughs> i mean the name should be enough of a warning <laughs> but you know he's got like dagon and reanimator 
Yeah, and and I mean more bizarrely, I mean this isn't just like a kind of rogue side project or anything like that. This is him returning to working with uh, Dennis Pauly, uh, who wrote the scripts for Reanimator and Dagon and From Beyond, and the adaptation of The Dreams in the Witch House. Uh, it stars uh, Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. I mean this is like a Lovecraft dream team, but the the film is just appalling. I'm going to have to go back and watch it now, just uh, just for the hell of it. The, the only thing I've ever seen of it was the promotional poster. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And when we say it's based on The Outsider, I mean, The Outsider is credited, uh, if you look at uh, the credits for the film, as being the source for it. This is tangential at best. There is this creature, yeah, that is locked up in a castle and uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe, I seem to remember. It's 20 years since I've seen this film. This American family turns up uh, to stay in the castle and the creature obviously gets loose. And the creature is sort of this undeadish, decayed-looking thing that, yeah, possibly bears some resemblance to the description from the outsider, but at the same time looks like kind of a cross between that and a troglodyte. Not the first film to hardly honour its source material, though, is it? No. Now, if you go on YouTube, you'll find there are quite a lot of adaptations of The Outsider around. But one which bears talking about would be the 1994 short film by Aaron Vanek. His adaptation of The Outsider, again, it's, it's not exactly faithful. I mean, he takes the story in a completely different direction, makes it much more of a sort of twisted, uh, dark romance, in a way. And more heavily mythos, blatantly mythos. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Despite the fact that it's you know not a faithful adaptation, it's, it's a good, good film. And actually ended up winning the, the HP Lovecraft Film Festival Best Student Adaptation in 1996. Deservedly so. And apparently the protagonist in that film used the chat-up line about showing the shadows of Nakai to, to you know that that was his sort of promise when <laughs> yes. it uh, that was his chat-up line them. yeah pre pre to getting down on one knee and saying will you marry me <laughs> that's a kind of a romantic we all aspire to be the ladies it? love a bit of Nakai hang, hang, hang on do you, do you want to tell the audience how you proposed to your wife Matt uh, <laughs> <laughs> when we went to go to the Roanoke. Uh, what was left of the Roanoke settlement. And I said about uh, how the area had been mentioned in the uh, Dreamlands book, the, the H.P. Lovecraft Dreamlands source book for Call of Cthulhu, saying that all of the inhabitants, um, after coming near starvation, uh, weather bad, uh, battering them, wars with the local Indians and so on, that they'd wandered into the forest and that there was a gateway into the Enchanted Wood out there somewhere. And so it was a place where dreams could come true. So, when you're saying what kind of weirdo would propose using elements of the mythos? My kind of weirdo, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All that there is now is just a lone tree with the word Sanderson carved into the bark. <laughs> Nobody knows what became of them. <laughs> Let's see what we can steal for gaming from the outsider. I think one general point is this is a good example of how Lovecraft, as a student of Poe, you know, set out, I think, to write this gothic story. Certainly was, was at the time, very much aping Poe's style. But in the end, 
you know, he took that influence, he, he filtered it through his, you know, his own skill, his own experience, his own mind, and turned it into what is, I think, in the end, something quite new, particularly, you know, as you get towards the latter part of the story, it starts turning into much more of what we consider to be a Lovecraft story. And I think this is a good example of how we as gamers, particularly people who, you know, GM or write scenarios, you shouldn't worry too much about you know, being influenced by stuff, about lifting stuff almost wholesale from other sources. Because by the time you end up adapting it you know, through your own quotes, your own perceptions, it tends to turn into something quite unique. And in our previous shows about how to begin role-playing games, one of the things we mentioned was amnesiac beginnings. Starting off with characters who don't know can't remember who they are where they are and this is a great example of that now it could be that the character is actually dead somehow returning to life in your in your game or perhaps just thinks they're dead or you know we, we don't know but yeah, as, as a sort of springboard for a start of a game that sounds pretty cool to me as i definitely think the thing i would steal most from it again like rats in the walls is this vast underground layer realm of the dead Mm. Yeah, it does yeah. does spark a lot of imagery that I keep thinking back to Phantasm as well of all the graveyard mm. scenes and so on and all the mortuaries there. That yeah, it's a, some something that really appeals to me on a, on a deep level. Well, and also going back to what we were talking about before about whether this is a dream or whether it's real. I mean, if you're you're looking at that. That, that sort of nightmarish version of the dreamlands that's coming from the protagonist's own experiences, his own life history, then. Yeah, again, finding some way of doing that. I mean, that almost becomes like the the, the whole corrupted backstory elements uh, in Call of Cthulhu 7th, that, you know, say the significant location for this character was the castle. He has gone through this transformative experience. He has been corrupted by the whole thing. And so you've corrupted this, um, you know, the significant location into this nightmarish, dark prison of a castle. And the whole idea of insanities in Call of Cthulhu and the loss of a sense of what's real and what isn't. Uh, if a character were to suffer from an episode of insanity in the game, you know, they could get the impression that they're dead or that, you know, or at least that they look horrific. Perhaps they've had some injuries or, or as a delusion, they think they have injuries. Um, and when they come back, they, you know, they perhaps catch a glimpse of themselves and they see how horrifically they've been disfigured. Of course, they're fine. Well, there is actually a real-world precedent for that. It normally comes about as a result of brain damage or psychosis, but it's uh, a syndrome called Cotard's delusion. I mean, it refers to a number of different things, but mainly it, it's this sense that you either do not exist or that you're dead. And it can carry all sorts of hallucinations or delusions with it that um, you are decaying, that there's parts of your body missing. And, you know, people who suffer from this delusion potentially have the experience that the, the protagonist of the outsider has at the end of seeing themselves in a mirror and seeing this rotten, undead, shambling thing when everyone else just sees them perfectly normally. And I think extrapolating from that story-wise, you know, if if it's not just you, I mean, maybe it's just one character, maybe it's a few characters that this that, that are in this condition. You know, why have they come back from the grave, so to speak? Maybe it's not just to eat man flesh. Maybe it's to uh, juicy brains too. Yeah, <laughs> and the brains, of course. 
but you know what, what's their what's their goal what's their mission why have they kind of come back well i mean if we're looking particularly at call of cthulhu it's fairly unusual to see the undead in any form in Call of Cthulhu. I mean, we see uh, ghouls, and sometimes we see zombies that have been resurrected or created through uh, various forms of mythos magic. I guess in Lovecraft in general, and you know, certainly what's what's seeped into gaming, the only story of his that springs to mind is as being part of the mythos and also involving undead uh, would be uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward the ones that have been resurrected from their intent, their, their essential salts and have come back wrong. Ye liveliest awfulness. Exactly. <laughs> that doesn't mean that we can't find other ways of bringing the undead into Call of Cthulhu. I mean, you know, we could contrive all sorts of reasons, you know, from mythos magic to you know, exposure to um, alien chemicals that have somehow you know, brought some semblance of life back to dead tissue... It worked in the uh, 1990s adaptation of War of the Worlds for the TV series. Toxic Waste, bringing the Martians back to life. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of, you know, if you've got a horror story you want to tell, whether it's just traditional kind of supernatural or whether it's, you know, pure kind of mythos, it it works fine either way, really. It doesn't have to be part of the wider Cthulhu mythos world that you're running this, uh, this game in. And people conflate the two anyway. I mean, for example, there's nothing particularly mythos-related in Lovecraft's uh, Herbert West Reanimator. But, you know, again, that is about people being brought back from the dead. And people have linked that into the mythos in all sorts of ways. Uh, you know, certainly there are any number of Call of Cthulhu scenarios that have, have made reference to Herbert West or his serum. There's no reason not to do that. And, I mean, how much could we extrapolate from those couple of lines towards the end where he talks about travelling on the ghoul winds, whatever the hell yeah. that is. I mean, that, that just brings up a, a weird image in itself. And then his whole journey and destination of these uh, crypts and so on in Egypt. Well, I think just the phrase ghoul winds on its own, that's been bouncing around inside my head since I reread this story a few days ago. There's something I'm working on at the moment that does involve ghouls. And, yeah, I, I, I keep seeing all sorts of interesting ways of bringing this in. Just this idea of of ghouls just floating on the winds, the uh, like, like these <laughs> these kind of balloons of death floating around. Yeah, the deathly wombat. <laughs> I think what you should have, Scott, is like it gets a good wind, and they get like a coffin lid, and just like you know, <laughs> run and jump on the lid, and they just kind of surf the winds to to Egypt. I, I think that would work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go surfing now, everybody surfing now. <laughs> I mean, one of the, the things that I thought was interesting about this story, if we take the, the, the dream or the dead dream interpretation of it, though, the fact that the narrator starts off not being able to tell what's real and what's not, he is still, to some extent, lost in this dream and trying to find his way of breaking out. I mean, that seems like quite a nightmarish uh, setup for a game. I don't know. I mean, I, I personally, I have had nightmares like that before. And the, the, yeah, as an idea, it's just one of the few things that actually seems to be able to unsettle me now. You know, that whole idea, you know, from Hamlet of, you know, and, and it, with, with such sleep, what dreams may come. And even he talks about the people that looked after him. Yeah. And he can't really remember them. Who were they? Because he can't picture them. It's so long ago. But and it's this whole dream-like feeling that one gets in a dream when... Yeah. Things are very confused, and don't re- in the cold light of day, just don't really make sense. 
I, I took that to be his memories of his funeral. But, uh, or maybe the Undertaker preparing his corpse and stuff like that. Oh, I but. took it as memories of his life. If we're to take it that he's dead and in a tomb, then that, you know, that was memories of his when he was alive. Oh, I took it to be. From my perspective, it was just that he was trying to come up with a rationalisation to explain the situation, what he was in. Mm, to say yeah. that, well, I'm here, so obviously someone must have taken care of me while I was a kid, so therefore they did. And, and he's got all these sorry. books as well that he's been reading, so... You know, what, what do they tell him about? Well, there, there was, but enough, going back to um, having read up of weird stuff in collections like Colin Wilson put together, there was a case, where I believe, in Highgate Cemetery, actually, where we went to uh, a few weeks ago now, that there was someone who was buried with a very large collection of their books and that they were, they were sealed away with them as part of their... Um, part of their last will that they say that they wanted the collection with them for all eternity that's what i took it to be in this case it's a bit like mm. going almost again like an egyptian tomb that they were buried with all their prized possessions that it was just stuff that he had been interred with have you written a will yet matt i i'm gonna have you to might want to do that you might want to get all your books you know <laughs> you're gonna need some real big pallbearers for that <laughs> yeah like jcb yeah one other cool thing that I find about The Outsider is the fact that at the end, the narrator accepts his new condition, or you know what he has come to realise is his condition, which for me has echoes of The Shadow of Rinsmith, a very similar kind of ending of, you know, mm. uh, you know, I don't want to be a monster, I don't want to be a monster, or hang on, I'm a monster, well, better live with it. And a sense of wonder at yeah. that as well, isn't there? Yeah, it, it opens up new worlds. In fact, yeah, exactly like, it is just like The Shadow of Rinsmith yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah. Except instead of swimming down to Johannath Lay, that you know he's 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 trolling around the uh, the pyramids of Egypt. Yeah, it's not like oh I'm a monster. Oh damn it, I'm a monster. It's like whoa, I'm a monster. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I, is that something that we've ever actually done in Call of Cthulhu? I know we've taken players partly down that route that we've had them transforming into things that otherwise aren't necessarily human. Yeah, um, but they've never really got to see the, the end effect of it case i think of with one example that i did that in the um the very last scene of said game was where the player who was realized that they were changing casually asking for the gun of the person next to them and then blew his own brains out and you've changed into a ghoul in one of my games matt oh yeah i reveled in that, <laughs> that was... <laughs> but but i guess the thing is that when in call of cthulhu when these transformations reach their conclusion and if you do have someone who is transforming into a ghoul or if they're a deep one hybrid and their deep one nature is coming out or if there's something else going on at that stage we tend to decide that the character is unplayable mm. that they are an npc that they've you know hit zero sanity they're beyond humanity and i don't know i mean what what these stories seem to indicate is this is where the fun starts i mean is this something that we should explore in games i'd be very tempted to run a ghoul game mm. um to have play um to have players that have either maybe or even this version of an undead version where they've come back or their transformation has completed and then put them against some problem but very, very much tell it from the ghoul's perspective 
I, I've actually written two scenarios like that, thinking about it, uh, both for Dead of Night, uh, which I've run at conventions all over the place. Uh, one of which, you know, the player characters have been brought back from the dead by medical experiments and, and are sort of trying to come to terms with that. And the other of which is where they, the player characters are all a family of ghouls trying to deal with the fact that a, um, a company has come in to redevelop their, their um, graveyard and turn it into a supermarket. And what the hell do they do about that? They only move the headstones! <laughs> <laughs> but don't forget American Werewolf in London. Do you know how boring it is being undead? (laughs) The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well... It's that time once again in the episode where we thank those generous souls who have backed us on Patreon. Woohoo! Yep, thank you to each and every one of you. The money you give us pays for our hosting costs, our bandwidth costs, all the miscellaneous expenses, and keeps this podcast going. So we are genuinely grateful. And we have some new backers to thank today. We wanted to let you know that we've got the Blasphemous Tome issue 2 coming out soon. In January, in fact. And if you want a copy, then all backers will receive at least one copy. Those who on $1 will receive a copy. Those on $3 will get a signed copy. And those on $5 will get a signed copy and a non-signed copy. Perfect for putting on eBay. And as mentioned in previous episodes, we are looking for contributions from you, the listeners. Yes, that's you! (laughs) Yes, you behind the bike shed! If you like Pink Floyd. We're looking for your most hideous, most revolting, and generally just downright weird monsters. So anything that fits in 500 words or less, send it to us. Make us cry. Make us have sleepless nights. The more the better. And also, if you have any other short articles that you think would interest people that are 500 words or fewer, or any illustrations or photographs that would reproduce nicely in a black and white fanzine, then again, we would love to see those. So let's kick things off by saying a big thank you to our new backer, Bill Henderson. Thank you very much, Bill. Indeed. Cheers, Bill. And we have another new backer to thank, Tim Brandis. So thank you very much, Tim. Indeed. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. And indeed, another Patreon to thank, new to the fold, Jonathan Powell. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yep. Cheers, Jonathan. Yep. Cheers, Jonathan. Cheers. And now we move on to some $5 backers. For those of you who haven't heard this before, when someone backs us at the $5 level, we sing our thanks to them. Oh, boy. We yeah. sing? <laughs> well, I, Paul initially pitched this idea. Matt, we've got to sing. This is the first time. <laughs> we kind of warble. <laughs> but Paul initially pitched this idea many years ago, it seems, when we first started out Patreon, by putting this on the $5 level that we would sing our thanks in Barbershop Quartet. What's the worst that could happen? Well, you didn't think to check, first of all, whether any of us could actually sing, which is pretty much a prerequisite for Barbershop Quartet. Especially Jackson, because he doesn't say a bloody word throughout the whole thing. (laughs) He is quiet. So instead, we have adapted to our limitations. And, and boy, are we limited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what we produce nowadays is something else. 
So the first of our $5 backers today has upped his pledge from a lower tier up to the $5 level. So here we go. Matthew Peterson, this is for you. Yes, thank you, Matthew, and brace yourself. <laughs> thank you, 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 Matthew Peterson. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Matthew Peterson. And the next one, this one goes out to Brandon Wall. You brought it on yourself. What can I say? Ho, ho, ho! Brandon Wall, Brandon. Brandon Wall, Brandon Wall. Brandon Wall. Thank you. We've come to that time again where we are calling upon the ethereal guidance of our good friend Jackson Elias. So it is time to ask Jackson. And our question this episode comes from the uncaring cosmos. Dear Jackson, I'm writing with a rather embarrassing problem. I have this friend, and I'm, I, I mean, he is madly in love with this girl. She's an absolute stunner, with the most beautiful over-protuberant eyes you've ever seen. Her skin is like thick, luxurious rubber. Her voice is like the gentle bubbling of the ocean. And her hair is like rich, dark seaweed that's been left to ripen in the summer sun. She has gills to die for. The thing is, my friend is a bit worried about this girl being just too good to be true. She seems too perfect. How can I, I, I mean my friend, discreetly inquire as to her background without scaring away this heavenly creature? Sincerely, the uncaring cosmos. Well, for a start off, anyone that's got a uh, skin-like luxurious rubbers obviously into a fetish that's uh, pretty, pretty good. Um, but there's an easy, surefire way to tell here if she is the right girl for you. As you're walking down the streets, casually talking, maybe hand in hand, and maybe as people do, they just start whistling, just chime out with the line of, if I were a deep one. And if she replies with, blub, 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 then you know she is the girl for you. I, I think that's just advice in general. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Some of the content of your letter seems to indicate that there is some kind of identity crisis going on here. You're unsure whether you are your friend or whether you're yourself. And judging by this heavenly creature's resemblance to Asenath Waite, I think the one warning I'd offer is that any identity crisis you may be undergoing at the moment is going to get severely compounded. This is one of the reasons that Attract Fish was taken out of the rulebook, just to <laughs> stop this kind of thing happening. Well, it's a perfect matchmaker spell. 
Hey, look, if it worked for Troy McClure, it can work for the uncaring cosmos. And can I just say as well that, you know, the, the passion in your letter completely gives lie to your name. He is not uncaring. No, no, no. That, that seems to be the least of your problems, mate. And what are our final thoughts on The Outsider? I thoroughly recommend it. I think it's a great short story. It's one that when you pick up the book of Lovecraft Tales for the first time, it's late at night and you're like me and you're a bit lazy. You look down the list of contents and you think, that one's short. I'll try that. <laughs> and I think, you know, you won't be disappointed. It's, it, it, it works. It's short. It's snappy. And there is quite a lot to it. He's got a hell of an atmosphere, and he really builds up atmosphere unlike a lot of his other stories, where he's, um, as Scott said, can be perhaps quite clinical and quite detached in some in some respects. This just drips Poe and gothic gothic feel to it. It's wonderful. Yeah, I, I think out of all his early works, I mean, this is possibly the best, certainly one of the best. I, I have a particular fondness for this story because it's one of the first Lovecraft stories that I read. There, there were three Lovecraft stories that I read before I knew who Lovecraft was. It was The Moonbog, The Evil Clergyman, and The Outsider, all of which I just stumbled across in various collections of horror stories. And out of the three of them, yeah, I mean, this is the one I think that stands out the best. I mean, the Moonbog still haunts me because it was the first Lovecraft that I read. But, um, yeah, I think this goes beyond being a simple Poe pastiche and certainly is an early indication of what Lovecraft was capable of. I think that about wraps it up for tonight. It's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. BlasphemousTomes.com Yeah, when we were walking around trying to find a convenience store earlier, uh, Matt Matt dropped me off at the side of the road and I wanted over to the convenience store and I bumped into this woman and her small child who oh were walking along and, and the small child stopped and I just, yeah, mummy, it's Santa. <laughs> <laughs>